At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to Scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. God is dead, and God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives, and who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to cleanse ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? These words are found and written by one of the most influential philosophers of the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche. On the heels of the Enlightenment and what it meant for the Western world, Nietzsche evaluated the landscape of society and concluded that the triumph of scientific rationality had removed the need for anything sacred or for God in Western culture. And so on the words of his madman and his famous novel, he declared, God is dead. And for Nietzsche, this meant that God was no longer a viable belief, that his influence on life, society, and the destiny of the world was no longer needed or needed to be admitted into modern society. Nietzsche's words would be prophetic for what we have seen in the 140 years since he famously articulated them. Our society and culture does indeed believe that God is dead, and therefore God should be removed from the running of our lives and the running of our world. We would use a different label for what Nietzsche described. Today, we use the term or label secularism. And secularism is simply the idea that we don't really need God, and God should not take priority in our world, in our society. Here's one simple definition of secularism that comes from Jim Herrick. So secularism in the largest sense means that people do not refer to religion to make decisions, to adopt policies, to run their lives, to order their relationships, or to impel their activities. Secularism, in a sense, is what happens when an entire society adopts the belief and mindset that God is dead. And this is what's taken place in our world. That's just true. No argument to that. If you look at any major institution in our society, politics, education, business, family, economics, what you see is that any appeal to religion, to God, to Christian faith, to any faith, for that matter, has been moved from the center to the periphery. It isn't welcome. And how we live or how we run our world. 
Charles Taylor was a very well-known Canadian philosopher. And Charles Taylor uh, wrote a book several years ago. He's still alive today, but he wrote a book several years ago where he evaluated the movement of society in the Western world over the last several decades. And in that book, he kind of articulates a shift towards secularism. The title of the book is called A Secular Age. And this is the shift that he notes. Taylor wrote this, The shift to secularity in this sense consists, among other things, of a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic, this is what we were in society, to one in which it is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. What Taylor noted was there was a shift in society that decades ago, society would have looked and said, if someone believes in God, great. That's, that's many of us do. That's the norm. But we've shifted to a place, not only where God is just one option among many, but it's becoming less frequent that to believe in God almost seems absurd at points to some people. Now, why is this important for us to understand? Why why am I talking about secularism at the beginning of a study on Ecclesiastes? Well, there's a few reasons that I bring this up to kind of start us in our study today. The first reason is this idea is really the air that we breathe. The waters that you and I swim in, in our daily lives, where we work, where we learn, where our kids learn, when we think about politics, when we think about Anything in our world, the discussions you have with your family and friends, secularism is assumed in all those places. It just is the worldview in our world that we assume is meant to be at the center. The postmodern writer David Foster Wallace shared a a famous story of two fish uh, that were swimming along one day in the ocean, and these two fish passed an older fish. And as the fish was swimming by, he said to the two younger fish, he said, morning, boys, how's the water? Ignoring him, they kind of just kept swimming a little bit further. And finally, the one fish turned to the other fish and said, what the heck is water? And in many ways, that story kind of encapsulates the world that you and I exist in. Ask anyone, what's secularism? And many people will not be able to give you a definition or discuss it meaningfully, yet... It's the worldview that's assumed in the media that we consume, in the conversations that we have, in the way in which we run our world. And many people today, they're either active secularists, which means they are actively pursuing a life where God is removed, or they're passive secularists. It's just the water that they swim in. Now, I love Wallace's story of the fish, because he actually says later in the speech that he gives it that the point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. And that leads me to the second reason why I want to start our conversation on secularism. You see, the reality is that you and I, we desire meaning and purpose for our lives. That's fundamental to who we are as human beings. And secularism, which is assumed by our world is something that while is pervasive is not often discussed. It's not often evaluated. 
You see, one of the great claims of secularism in our world today is that you can find ultimate purpose and fulfillment, not just in a life without God, but by actually actively rejecting God. Now, the question is, is that true? Does secularism stand up as a sufficient worldview for life? It's assumed in our world, but it's not often discussed or evaluated. This is why I love Nietzsche's quote and where I began, because Nietzsche recognizes that secularism removes God from the equation, but in that leaves a gap that must be filled. If you're going to take God out of our lives and the world, what do you replace him with? That's why he asked the question, do we not have to become gods ourselves? How do we understand our world? Does the secular worldview do that sufficiently? Does it provide what's necessary for meaning and purpose in life? And the third reason why I think it's important is because it's the backdrop of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of the most bizarre books in your Bible. You're going to find that out over the next six weeks as we dig into it together. It's cynical, pessimistic at times. It's it's bizarro. But it's a book that's important for a dialogue on secularism. Because it's a book that looks at one man's search for meaning in all the various avenues and places of life. It creates within us the questions and the conversations that I think we need to have about a worldview that is so pervasive in our society today. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to dig into the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. We're going to allow it to ask the questions, to force the dialogue, to think together about what secularism has to offer and what Christianity has to offer to point us towards what is it that we believe. And so if you're here and you're not sure about Christianity, if you're searching and seeking and kind of trying to figure out, man, I want to invite you into this conversation. I think this is going to be a really key book to just raise some questions and have some dialogue. But maybe you're here and you have faith in God. I would probably imagine that's most of us in this room. We are a church. But... You find yourself constantly swimming in these waters, trying to figure out and navigate a world that seems increasingly secular, wondering how to have these conversations, what sort of questions need asked, what sort of things need discussed. And I think this is going to be a really helpful book for all of us in navigating the waters that we swim in. So each week, we're going to take a section of Ecclesiastes, And we're going to look at it through the lens of the secular worldview that it kind of portrays. And then we're going to see, what does Christianity say in response to it? So this morning, we're just going to jump in. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. And I think they're going to kind of set up a little bit of why I want to talk about what I want to talk about and kind of where I want to go in our first discussion this morning. So look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It begins this way. The words of the preacher... The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, the thing I want you to notice right away as we enter into this book is that you're introduced really to two voices, and there's two primary voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. The first voice that you're introduced to is what we will call the author, the one who compiled the book. 
We don't know who the author is, but what we see in the book is that the author is set up different from the preacher. So the author's voice is very minimal in the book. He essentially allows the preacher, who I'll introduce to you in a second, to speak the majority of the time. But the author shows up at the beginning, and then he's going to show up at the very end. And he's the one who compiled the, the book of Ecclesiastes. And really, the author allows the preacher to be the main voice. And then he moves towards evaluation. So right away, the author introduces us to the second voice, which is the preacher. Now, this word that we translate preacher is the Hebrew word kaveleth. And kaveleth really is somebody who gathers people for training or instruction or sharing or wisdom. It's why we translate it as preacher. But you could also maybe translate it as teacher, professor, anyone that gathers someone to share wisdom with them. Now, naturally, the question is, okay, who is the preacher? Who is Kaveleth? Some say it's Solomon, because the introduction that's given here at the very beginning is used to describe Solomon in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs, it says, Solomon, son of David, king in Israel. Here, it just says, the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. The hard part is, when you study through the book, he doesn't always sound, sometimes he sounds a lot like Solomon, sometimes he doesn't sound like Solomon. So some people have concluded it could be another son of David, but none quite seem to fit. Others have come along and said it's a person that adopts a Solomon persona, someone that wants you to evaluate life through the eyes of Solomon. Now, why would they do that? Well, remember, Solomon was probably the most worldly successful king in Israel. He was the son of David. He was the last king when Israel was united before it split into Israel and Judah. God came to Solomon in a dream and asked him that he would give him whatever he wanted. Solomon asked for wisdom, and so he was one of the wisest people on earth at the time. He amassed incredible wealth and success, built palaces, the temple, magnificent architecture. He was like the height of success for the nation of Israel. So whether the preacher is Solomon or is a Solomon persona, the author wants you to see this is someone who has reached the pinnacle and heights of life as the world would define it. And to allow his voice then to speak and shape how we evaluate and think about life. So the thing we need to understand right from the get-go is there's these two different voices, two different people. One is going to speak the majority of the time And then the other one is going to evaluate what is said. I heard uh, Tim Mackey, who's part of the Bible Project, he described it this way, and I think it's a great way to think of the book. Like, imagine you sat on your front porch with your grandpa, and he was going to talk to you about someone in the past. And he began to share with you stories about a person in the past and things that they said and stuff that they accomplished. And he, he kind of enthralled you in all of this knowledge from some distant person. And then at the end, your grandpa kind of sits down and says, now this is what I want you to understand about this and began to kind of give you some instruction on life. That's kind of Ecclesiastes. The author sets up to say, hey, we're going to listen to this guy speak, this preacher, and then I'm going to circle back at the very end of the book and I'm going to kind of show you and evaluate a little bit of what he says. So what we see primarily in the book is the voice of the preacher. And we're introduced to kind of the key ideas of the preacher right from the very beginning. You see it start in verse 2. Look what he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 
The preacher introduces us to his kind of key two ideas that he's going to repeat throughout the book. The first idea is this term vanity. This idea of vanity of vanities, that all is vanity or life is vanity. It's used, that phrase is used 38 times in the 12 chapters of the book. It's one of the key ideas that the preacher has, that all of life is vanity. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's really interesting because the word that we translate vanity is actually the Hebrew word hevel. You could say that with me. It's with a V in the middle. Hevel. And that's a key word. Every time you hear vanity, I want you to think of that word because it's hard for us at times to get at the meaning of what the preacher is trying to say in our English language because essentially what he's going to come back to time and time again in the book is that life is hevel. And hevel is actually the word in Hebrew for smoke or vapor. It's the idea of smoke or vapor, and it's the main image or metaphor that the preacher wants you to think about life, that life is hevel. Life is like the wind or vapor or smoke. Now, what is he trying to get at in this metaphor? Why does he think life is like vapor or smoke? So um, I have some smoke or vapor, I guess. So can you guys all see this most, for the most part? I can waft it a little bit. All right. <laughs> So here's his point. When he compares life to Hevel, he has kind of two ideas that he's going to unpack in the book in his mind. One is that life is fleeting. So just like you see the vapor from the water, and it's kind of there, but it's kind of gone, right? Like it it barely makes it like four inches out of the bowl. That's the preacher's understanding of life. That life is kind of fleeting. It's here and it's gone. That we get... Uh, several decades on earth at most. But in the great span of time, our life is very short. It's very fleeting. It's just here and gone. Just kind of like smoke is here and gone. Life is hevel. Now, the second reason he compares life to vapor or smoke is that like smoke, life is ungraspable. You ever try to grab smoke? Like it's there, but it's not there, and you can't really hold it. You can't really grasp it. And this is how the preacher views life, that life is kind of like an enigma. It doesn't operate by the rules we think it should, and it seems like right when we have life figured out, it's gone. It's out of our grasp. It's, it's unholdable. You see, sometimes we think the world's orderly. And it should work the way it is, so we tell our kids things like, do good things and good things will happen to you. But then I do good things and bad things happen to me. But then I see other people do bad things and good things happen to them. Wait, that doesn't make sense. Like, I can't, can't grasp life. What are the rules? What are the principles? So this is the main image that the preacher has, that life is hevel. It's like smoke or vapor. And you think, like, well, what is, would lead someone to such a cynical view of the world? Well, you see it actually in his second major idea in the book. Look at verse 3 where he says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So here's the second key phrase that he uses in the book. Life under the sun. It's used over 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what the author means in that idea is a life lived apart from God. 
That essentially, instead of living life under the heavens, which is the biblical imagery of God, life is now lived in only what is natural, only what is temporal, only what is done under the sun. What we would say in our day is what the author is describing is life from a secular perspective. What does life look like when you remove God from the equation? And essentially, Ecclesiastes is a long thought experiment on what a life of meaning is when it's pursued apart from God. Is there another meaning that I can search and find? Where do I turn if I remove God from the equation to find meaning in the world? And that's where I think the idea of our world of secularism is appropriate because we're all asking the same questions. If you remove God from the equation, where do you find the meaning? Where do you find purpose? Where do you find what your heart is looking for and longs for? And so the first place that the author is going to turn is to essentially what you have left when you remove God from the equation, right? When you take God out of the picture, what are you left with to begin to seek and pursue meaning from? Well, you're left with the natural world. You're left with the things you can see and touch and observe. What's made of matter, what's physical, what's tangible, And so the first thing that the author begins to search out for, for meaning, is really from a place of what we would call naturalism. Naturalism is kind of one of the underpinning ideas of secularism. Naturalism is the idea that only natural laws and forces can account for all reality and phenomena. That the universe essentially is a closed system. There's no outside force acting upon it. And so the only way we can understand anything in life, any meaning, any purpose, any activity, any phenomena, any action, is from the natural laws that exist within the world or the universe of what is natural. Its twin philosophy is materialism, which is the idea essentially that matter is the fundamental substance in nature. And that that's how life is to be evaluated. Naturalism in our world is, again, like secularism, simply assumed. It's the air in which we breathe because it's so connected to a life and world without God. And what we see is that when we remove God from the equation, what we are left with is nature. And nature just is. Richard Dawkins the well-known atheist and scientist, observes this. He says, The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at a bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. What Dawkins gives is a, a naturalist mindset that all we know is the world, and the world just is. Natural law just is. DNA just is. And we are just succumbed to the way the world naturally runs. Naturalism, in the end, is, in a way, determinism. That our lives are determined by the laws of nature. That you live and do, and the meaning that you have to do is just because you exist in a material world, and the chemicals in your brain tell you to do that, and that's how your life is, and you're shaped by all these other natural forces, and that's how we explain and understand everything. Naturalism's our default approach from education to science to media. It's how we think of, how do we explain where we are, who we are, how we are, 
Well, it's just nature. And nature just is. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. You just do what you do because of nature. Now, is this sufficient? Is this a sufficient worldview? Well, the preacher is going to come along and say, I don't think so. Because essentially, his approach to naturalism and to secularism, he kind of shows his cards on the front end of the thing. It essentially leads him to a point where he says, life is meaningless. It's hevel. It's vapor. It's fleeting. It's going nowhere. It doesn't matter. You see, when you begin to adopt secularism and naturalism as a worldview, you begin to raise questions that kind of force you to wrestle with the meaning or meaninglessness of life. One of the questions the author really gives us is, why does nature repeat itself? In fact, he goes on to kind of give us four realities of naturalism that force us to ask questions about whether it's sufficient or not to base our lives and the meaning of our lives around. The first place that he goes, so I, I always think it's fascinating when you, when you read the Bible, because I mean, we're, we're studying words written in a different language thousands of years ago, yet they elevate things that are very common within our world today. So look where he goes in verse 4. So what does it gain a man by all the toil? What, what does it profit? Where does he go? He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So here he's turning to the natural and he recognizes one of the fundamental realities that naturalism claims, which is that what is natural, that matter itself is assumed to be infinite, that it remains forever. Because matter is, and it cannot be explained otherwise, we simply must assume it's infinitude. And so he says, the earth remains forever. But what bothers the preacher about that is that nature then just feels very repetitive. It doesn't seem to go anywhere. Listen to his voice. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around and around it goes and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. You see, the author says, essentially, if we assume that all we have is the natural world, and that's the basis of reality, then why the world feels awfully cyclical. It feels awfully purposeless. Like we're just stuck in this rotation of day after day and the grind, and we do this, and we do that for a short series of lives, and then the next generation comes, and they go day after day, and the sun goes, and it comes down, and we work, and earth kind of does its thing, but it, it doesn't feel like it's actually going anywhere. It's just repeating itself over and over again. See, when you, when you adopt a naturalist mindset, the author essentially says it feels like the earth is operating on corona time. Like, remember when, when we were all in, like, quarantine, and it was like every day felt like the same day? You were like, did I wear pajamas yesterday? Yes, I did. And the day before, and the day before that. Like, is it Monday or Tuesday or what? Like, what? because everything just felt like repetition, and it felt like it wasn't going anywhere. Like, we were like, are we ever going to get out of this? Are we going to be in this forever? What's going to happen? Like, I mean, now, yeah, we're thankful. But then it was like, this just feels monotonous. And what the author is saying was, when you, when you adopt a naturalist mindset, that's kind of what life begins to feel like. 
Because in, in a worldview of naturalism, there's no history, there's no goal. There just is what is. Nature just is. And you're just in the present. Like, the earth was there, one day the earth will be gone. Like, that just is what is. So it feels like you're in this, for the author, for the preacher, you're in this constant just corona time. Where's this going? Just day after day and the grind. And he kind of gets to the point where he's like, what is the point? Life is just, it's hevel. The second thing that bothers him about this reality that leads him to conclude that life is meaningless is that life is dissatisfying. Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. You see, the, the reality of a naturalistic worldview is it doesn't sufficiently explain why we all have desires that are not met. If all we are is natural, if all we are is matter and chemicals, then why does life feel unsatisfying? Yeah, we have moments of satisfaction. You eat a good meal, you enjoy some good time with friends, certain things happen in your life that make you feel happy or sad. But yet all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have these kind of aches down deep where we ask questions and feel like, isn't there more? Isn't there more meaning? And I think at some point we recognize, the author recognizes, if we adopt a view that says like, no, there's not. Everything's just matter and natural and time and chance. Then why do we long for something more? Like one of the most paradoxical things to me about our world today as we've adopted a secular mindset is how are we becoming more anti-God and more spiritual at the same time? Like I don't understand that. But, but if you look at studies it's, in our world, it's true. More people are rejecting God, removing God from the center and order of their life. And yet, spirituality in our culture is at an all-time high. People are looking into Eastern mythics or mystics and practices and other religions to kind of drum up. And I'm like, wait, hold on. If it's all natural, why do we all feel this impulse to then begin looking for other meaning and places? Oh, maybe because we're actually meant to desire something more. C.S. Lewis famously noted in Mere Christianity, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The third reason that he gives us is that there's a lack of newness in the world. Look at 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. I mean, we live in the most technologically advanced society in the history of the world. Yet, if we're really honest with ourselves, not a lot has changed in 5,000 years. We still battle the same injustices. We still battle the same issues. Yeah, we have great technology, but in some ways, it's just an extension of who we are anyway. I mean, we can produce food better than any humans that have ever come before us, and yet there's still millions of people who woke up today hungry. Like, we're still dealing with the same stuff. And it leads the author to say, if naturalism is all there is, then it's meaningless. It's not going anywhere. We can't even solve our own problems, no matter how much technology we have. And then finally, he gets to the point that if naturalism is true, then only the present matters. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. I mean, genuine, honest naturalists say, yeah, history, history is a 
a cognitive awareness that we have as human beings. But once human beings are gone, history is done. It's only the present. There's no goal. There's no anything. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. And it leads the preacher at some point to say, then this is meaningless. Life is meaningless. It's hevel. It's smoke. It's vapor. Life is like being on a hamster wheel that you just run and run and run and you never feel like you get anywhere. And if you do, it can be erased like that in a moment. You see, a naturalistic worldview, I think if we're honest with ourselves, leads to senses of meaningless. Because we're designed for purpose. We're designed for something different. And the ache that we feel deep within our hearts is not sufficiently answered by a naturalistic world view. One of the things that I find fascinating, bear with my nerdiness for one minute, one of the things I find fascinating about a naturalistic worldview is that it assumes some of the same truths that Christians hold about God and have held for generations, but postulates it on nature. So one of the things that you assume in naturalism is that matter is infinite. You have no explanation for its beginning. Even though all of science points us towards there was some moment at the beginning where things came to be, we have no explanation for what was before. We have no explanation for what's after. So therefore, matter just is. It's the constant. That sounds a lot like God to me. So then, scientists have now postulated theories, which is big in naturalism, called the multiverse, which is essentially, if you look at all the world and you see how incredibly fine-tuned, and this is, this is not a Christian, this is just like a basic scientific fact, that the world is fine-tuned, I mean, to like incredible small degrees. And so what scientists have concluded is the only way that we could actually come to be in a universe that that fine-tuned is if there was an infinite number of universes and we just happened to be in the one that hit the right equation. And I'm like... So in order to have finitude, we have to assume infinity. Isn't that God? Like, isn't that the thing we've been wanting and saying? Maybe the issue isn't what your science tells you. Maybe the issue is whether or not you actually want to recognize the personal nature of a divine being. See, I think that's the crux of the issue. If there's a God then it's his way, not our way. You see, the truth and reality of what the Christians claim in the light of naturalism is that God is the creator. If you go back to the very beginning of your Bible in Genesis chapter 1, it begins, in the beginning, God created. And what Christians have held for thousands of years is that there is a cause that has brought the world into existence. There is a cause that has brought matter and all that we know to bear. And that cause is God. That is who he is. He is creator. And because he is creator, God has a plan for the world. That God created the world in such a way where we, as his creations, the pinnacle of creations, would flourish and experience life and meaning and purpose, all the things our hearts long for. 
But what scripture attests to is that you and I, we turn from God's plan. We turn from his path. We didn't want to submit under God, so we turned to ourselves. And like Nietzsche says, we made ourselves God. We want to determine what is right and wrong. That's not new. That's as ancient as humanity. And we still do it today. I mean, one of the things that I struggle with personally with naturalism and why I'm a Christian, put my cards on the table, is naturalism, for all that it says, cannot give a proper framework for goodness, ethics, moralism, and what is right and what is wrong. Because at the end of the day, if what is just is, then I have no moral responsibility. Life is meaningless. It's smoke. It's vapor. It's just here and gone. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't ultimately matter what I do. Like, if you boil the the vision down to the very bottom, what's the vision that's given? No wonder he's depressed and cynical. I'm surprised not more of us are. And the claims of Christianity is to come along and say, no, God actually did create you. And he created a world in which you flourish. But the reality is you and I, we turn from that world. But God didn't give up on us in that moment. God enacted a plan where he would work to redeem his world back to himself, to reform it with him at the center so you and I could find that ultimate purpose of glorifying him. And that God ultimately would work over time, and eventually send his own son into the world to live the life and show us what life would look like where God is at the center. And then he would ultimately, Jesus, go and die the death that we deserve for our rebellion. But he wouldn't stay dead. He would rise again. You see, the fundamental claim of Christianity, and this is something I want you to wrestle with today, is the fundamental claim of Christianity is a claim of the supernatural. If you're a Christian and you're in this room, your belief stands contrary to the worldview of naturalism because what your faith rests upon is a supernatural event because people don't naturally rise from the dead. I mean, we only have like 5,000 years of human history to attest to that. And yet the truth is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That God worked to raise him and show that he was the sufficient penalty or sufficient payment for our penalty. That there is hope for a new world, a new creation, where we discover the meaning and purpose and desires that God has designed and created us for. And that the witness of the resurrection is the witness of a supernatural God that works mightily and powerfully in a natural world. God is the creator, and he is the redeemer. And so if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with the the claims of Christianity, you're wrestling with the truth of Christianity, man, I want to invite you into a conversation. I would love to talk about what what does it mean and what do these worldviews really mean and why do we believe that that's true about Jesus? Because I think there's some compelling evidence for why we believe Jesus really rose from the dead. Man, I'm, I'm available for coffee. I'd love to have a conversation. I'll be right down front afterwards. I'd love to talk. But I want to flip the script for one second because if you're here and you are a Christian, here's the challenge that I want you to offer. I want to offer you. 
stop living so naturalistically. If the fundamental nature of our faith is built on the supernatural, why do we live like the natural is everything? You see, if life is meaningless, if it's just hevel, then do what you want. But if you're here this morning and you say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and then let's live supernatural lives. Like, let's live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's reject a worldview that says, oh, let me just continue to live as if the natural law is everything. And let's recapture the essence of what it means to be a people where God, a supernatural God, is at the center of who we are and how we run our lives and community. You see, I think the problem is most people reject Christianity not because of a supernatural God, but because of a supernaturally powerless people. We haven't shown them anything different. So what I want us to do this morning is I just want to take a moment. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing in a moment, but I want to pray over you and over myself. Because here's my confession. I can fall into the same trap. I can fall into the same place where I just live my life in my own power, my own nature, my own thing. How desperately we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to continue to transform us, to change us, to show the supernatural God that we follow. And so if you're here this morning and you're like, man, yeah, you're right, Jacob. I I tend to just live my own world. I don't really put God at the center. I'm just gonna invite you to pray with me. And And I would love for you to do this. So I'm gonna just invite us for a moment to just close our eyes and bow our heads. This is just to give us a moment of privacy and focus to attention. It's not anything weird. But if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I... I just need the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. I realize how much I try to live in my own strength. I'm just gonna invite you to raise your hand. I'm the only one looking. I'm with you. My hand's up too. And I just wanna pray over you this morning. May God work in your life in a powerful and supernatural way. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful this morning that you're incredible, that you're powerful, that you're magnificent, that we, that we get the opportunity to experience you. But God, I confess, I confess to my brothers and sisters that so often I live in, in my own strength, not aware of your presence, just grinding day after day in my own time, my own way. And I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry for the ways that I live so naturalistically when I claim to worship a supernatural God. I'm thankful in this moment that you're a God of grace and forgiveness. That even in confession, we also confess the truth and reality that Jesus is our righteousness that though we fail, he is faithful. He is our savior. He is the one that covers us. He's also the one that promised us the helper, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and works powerfully through us. And so I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters right now who have their hands raised in this room and online. I simply pray that you would work in us in a mighty and powerful way. Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would work the miraculous 
in our lives. That you would work in ways that cannot be explained simply by natural laws. That you would bring joy when we should despair. That you would bring hope when we should feel hopeless. That you would bring healing in the midst of brokenness or disease. God, that you would move in might and power amongst your people, that as we surrender ourselves to you, we would live lives in such a way that those around us can't help but see you because of the presence of your spirit inside of us. So we give ourselves to you. We ask that you would help us to be people who live supernaturally for your glory and your honor. We ask this in your mighty and powerful name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.